Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and joining us today is Beezer Clarkson, who I've been lucky to call a friend for almost a decade now. For those that don't know her, Beezer is the managing director of the LP arm of Sapphire Ventures. She's always been one of my favorite LPs in the ecosystem as she's always transparent, thoughtful, and willing to help. Many of you out there might know her as one of the founders of the hashtag OpenLP movement. In this week's episode, we discuss her general views on venture, what she believes are the specific issues that make it difficult as an LP to navigate the emerging manager market, her tips on how to pitch institutional LPs, and why diversity is such an important cause to her and her team. Now let's get into the show to hear all of that and more. This episode of Venture Unlocked is brought to you by Omni. Omni has helped well over 100 venture firms at all sizes improve their investment decision-making by using actionable, granular economic and legal data extracted from actual deal documents. By using Omni, fund managers can be much more confident in their ownership rights and economics and better serve all of their constituents. As somebody that loves working with emerging managers and understands the difficulty of scaling a firm, I'm so excited to see that Omni's solution helps firms become much more institutional through the use of real actionable data that acts as the single source of truth for their portfolios. This in turn translates to more streamlined fundraising processes as LPs can confidently assess the performance of existing portfolios. Check out their solutions at omni.fund. That's A-U-M-N-I dot fund. Beezer, it's so great to have you on the show. It is wonderful to be here. Let's start off with your con- a little bit of context and your entree into venture capital and what's led you to the point you're at now. I started in 2000 in New York at a what would be called now actually an emerging manager. It was a first-time early-stage $40 million fund that was also a hybrid incubator, if you can believe it. Probably would have been called a seed fund, but there wasn't even the nomenclature for that back then. It was just early-stage. And in the prototypical world of 2000 and 2001, it launched like late 99 and was closed down by 2001 because the market collapsed. And back then, funds literally returned the money to the LPs if it wasn't spent. And given the majority of the capital wasn't, it was returned, which is why you've never heard of it. It was called Launch Center 39. But the interesting thing that came out of it, as well as launching my time into venture, was that one of the three founders was Albert Wenger, who's now with Union Square. And so he, I actually worked for him. And in essence, he basically fired me in 2000. And now the flip side of all that is now we're LPs in Union Square. So that's kind of a fun way of saying like your life will go full circle and don't worry about fits and starts, right? And then from there, I'm going to fast forward to the rest of it. Moved to California in 2001. And over the last 19 years, I spent five of it doing software business development, which was my foray into operating. And then from there, I've worked at firms like Amidior Network, where I did for-profit investing, both direct and indirect, which was my first LP experience, as well as grant writing. And then I went to DFJ to work on the DFJ network, which was then a collection of 18 venture funds around the world. So if you want to talk about the globality or the expansion or how funds scale, happy to chat about it. And left there in 2012 to join Sapphire. And that was when we launched the LP program, which we now call Sapphire Partners. And I've been there ever since. Let's go into what you do at Sapphire and in particular, what led from being primarily a direct investor at the growth level to moving to a a fund of funds and how has it evolved since you started that? We launched in Sapphire Partners in 2012, which was a separate vehicle, separate team, 
separate construction for the dollars Sapphire Partners, which is the LP program, and it is structured as an evergreen-like vehicle, which we felt was important to support and be durable for our GPs. We have had the same strategy since we launched. We focus on the early stage venture funds. And for us, that means predominantly Series A. We have started to push more into seed in the last few years, and we can talk about that. Um, But I just wanted to mention that we predominantly are Series A. We're predominantly U.S., but we do have 30% of the collective capital going into Europe and Israel. And of that bucket is more Europe than Israel. And when we focus on the Series A, I'm going to offer this up because people talk about, you know, what do you focus on? What do you, how do you think about investing? And we think about the Series A world as being able to produce a 3x net return on the fund. So when we underwrite a fund, we're looking for that kind of return. And so part of the foray into seed is as well, if Series A does 3x, then seed for the earlier risk should have a higher reward. So we underwrite seed to a 5x net. It's a very helpful overview, and I can't wait to drill down in some of those topics, which I think are quite meaty on their own. But zooming out for a minute, before we get into your philosophy, how you look at emerging managers in in general, and let's talk a little bit about the change in the venture environment. You started 20 years ago. That's around the time I started. Of course, we've seen so many changes in the venture landscape, and much of that has changed even more dramatically over the last five to 10 years. Let's start with your perspective on where venture is right now and and the major themes from your perspective as an LP that have surfaced really in the last decade or so. You know, it's so interesting because on one hand, I agree with you. I feel like so much has changed and that's a bit in the elasticity of venture and the ability to innovate and to move quickly and do new kinds of funds and think of new ways of doing them. We can dig into all that. But at the other hand, a big part of me says, really, venture hasn't changed. The underlying business of venture is exactly the same. LPs invest in funds, funds invest in companies, companies go out and try to innovate and change the world and do great things. And the base, that basic model hasn't changed at all. And that's the backbone of venture, right? And with some exceptions, even the economics haven't really changed because you know whether the management fee is two or two and a half percent, there's still a management fee business, and then you have the carry on top. I don't know. So in one ways, I feel like I would actually say that it hasn't really changed. But how we how we think about venture funds and where we're pushing into and the innovation possible is cer- certainly starting to ramp, which is really exciting. And I think you're correct in that the fundamentals haven't changed, and even from an economic standpoint, things have been fairly anchored to what we've seen for decades. But maybe speak to the things that you think that have changed and how you're thinking about investing in funds maybe has evolved over the last few years. I'm going to just talk briefly about the value-added services world. I mean, it used to be the whole value-add that you got was that you got money, right? And you got a person to be on your board or not, depending on whether or not they did. But I think, I, I don't have perfect data on this, but I think historically that was kind of always a gist because that was what the dollars, that was the advice and the dollars that came together. I mean, now offering whole different kinds of venture of, of value-add offerings or table stakes and what kind and how they do it and what it looks like. There's a whole myriad of world out there depending on who the investor is and who the company is. So that's that's changed a lot, which we think is interesting. And it kind of gets at the ability to slice up the world more granularly now. And I think maybe we're in danger of over-slicing it, but you, you, you can have a whole range of what kind of funds you want to construct. There's incubators, accelerators, studios, that whole gamut. You also now have rolling funds. So there's ways of getting into new areas and getting new people going, which is like setting on, we've sliced up the pie as far as checks. So you got your pre-seed, seed, 
seed one through whatever 10 series A mega rounds, mega mega rounds, right? So people can choose to play in different places, which I like. I can't prove this yet that this is the best way of doing it, but I do have a belief that if you can figure out what kind of investor you are and really build a firm and a business around that and your colleagues, that has to be some sort of powerful driver of returns. And if you can rethink the world in a little bit more of a nuance of where you want to play and how you want to play, then that should help release some of that versus everything being more or less a cookie cutter. You know, it's interesting you say that. One of the uh, items that I always talk about with LPs is understanding, is there a fit between the GP and their particular thesis? And one word that gets bandied around quite often is differentiation. And, you know, Chris Duvos was on this show and he said, you know, differentiation isn't what you're looking for. You're really looking for something that you have a competitive mode around. Are there things in your mind that really bring forward clarity that a GP has a competitive mode around their thesis? And are there models out there right now that you think lend themselves to really having an advantage and that pathway to a 5X? And I know that's a, it's a pretty general question, but I'm curious to hear your observations having talked to so many GPs over the years. Well, I agree with Chris because being differentiated sounds a bit like going out there and try to figure out what you want someone else to say, what you want someone else to hear. And that's, that's not probably going to work at the end of the day. But if you really have a vision for where you think you can put money to work and the kind of founders you're going to work with, even if it sounds on the surface, like I'm going to raise a series A fund and it's going to be 250 million. And here is my portfolio construction because I believe ownership matters and concentration matters. That might be similar because I do think some of the hallmarks of portfolio construction do help drive returns. It's at the end of the day, a mathematical equation on money in, money out. But how you, Samir, or how I, Beezer, then go out and think about the kind of investors and the kind of founders I want to work with is going to be an expression of who we are as people and what we think the world is going to be using later, right? Which companies are going to work. And if if people sort of stay true to form to that and really kind of figure out the, the fit between them and what they invest in and then what that means for the firm they want to build, that's at least what ends up resonating for us. We have a pretty rigorous quantitative process that we use and we put everybody through it. Um, and we think that actually helps with keeping our biases out for what it's worth. But there is always this part, which is the where are you going after? Where are you seeing a white space that is all about the people and their vision? And it shows itself ultimately through the numbers. But in the beginning, that's that's part of the, the storyline that people have to tell. And I agree with that. I, you know, when I talk to GPs, talk about what are you actually doing that is different from the perspective that gives you some type of advantage from a probability of returns? How is that durable? And why is that authentic to you? But you mentioned something around quantitative. A lot of these emerging managers are coming to market with a fund one or fund two or even fund three in some cases, and they don't really have long track records. Outside of that qualitative narrative of looking at the person, looking at you know where they've spent their time, what are those quantitative frameworks that you look at as an institutional LP? I will give this caveat. We have never backed somebody who's never invested before. That's a tricky one for me to answer, but I would say that's probably a big jump to go from I've never invested before to raising institutional capital, more so because you don't even know if you really want to be in the business of having institutional capital. And we can talk about that later. Assuming that somebody has done some sort of investing, there is something to look at. And it might not be lots of numbers, but there will be some numbers, right? Because people will have chosen to invest and understanding 
why they have chosen what they have chosen, how they thought about their check size, even if the check size is, well, this is the money that I have, that's a completely fair answer, right? Because it's sort of getting to know, especially when we work with early stage GPs, what are they like? What are they seeing? What, where do they think there's potential? And there is, it's exciting to hear what brought their, you know, why they chose company A versus company B and how did they source that company? And then once they sourced it, how did they negotiate to be part of it? And those are all things, even if it's an angel portfolio or a scout portfolio, those are all discussions you can have. And then, of course, there's all the obvious then what happened to the company questions, which can get answered not just in TVPI, but also what's happening in the company. What are the right metrics that show progression? And there's also questions that when people can get in, you can look at with an emerging manager, like, who are you working with? And how did you choose to work with them? And how do you, because there are some solo capitalists, there's I don't know the numbers. Maybe you know, Samir, you track so many more emerging managers and we've the capacity to, but I would suppose that there's more partnerships than there are single GPs. So it brings up the question of who are you working with? Why are you working together? How do you know you want to do this together? It's a long road, as we all know. So all those things come up and those are all really, really important parts of the narrative because what an LP is looking at is I'm giving you money and it's a blind pool. Like I have honestly, no idea what you're going to do with it, right? All I can do is look at the past and say, you like these things in the past and you found them for these reasons. Based on that, I'm going to make a bet on you going forward, but you could pivot and I wouldn't be able to stop it. There's no LPA term that says, I don't like this individual investment. I'm out of here. Like that doesn't work in venture land. So there's a lot of, this is why LPs always try to dig in who you are. Why are you here? Where do you really think explosive growth is coming in the market? Why and how do you think that? Because we're limited, right? Limited partner means like you're basically in the back row hanging on. <laughs> so what I'm hearing, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that, you know, from an investment standpoint, you will back first time funds, perhaps, but not first time managers, you want to see some level of track record, be it at another firm, or, you know, as an angel, or as a scout, or, or some form that demonstrates the ability to invest and get into companies and win, you know, deals. But isn't it also true that as managers, maybe go from an existing shop to starting their own, or somebody going from a fund one to fund two, and increasing their fund size by 3x, it's a totally different model. And so how do you think about it, you know, from that perspective of how much weight do I put on what they did before, because it actually may not be a great indicator of why it's relevant today? No, it's a great question. And it's a question we end up in discussion with folks a lot. Because as you notice, fund sizes do grow and sometimes fund sizes grow and it doesn't change the business that much because the round sizes are growing. So there's some of that, right? And you can, this is a conversation we actively have with, with GPs. And there's other times where you're in conversation with somebody and we'll talk about the jump from seed to A where they've been a collaborative seed investor. And all of a sudden, whether or not they realize that they're going to be going to competing because the seed world is much more competitive, but depending on your check size, there's still room of having co-leads or or not being the lead. And all of a sudden, if you're then going and you need to lead the A and elbow out all these people that were your friends before, that's a very different dynamic. And honestly, it's a little disconcerting as an LP when you realize that before the GP does, who is pitching you on the fact that they're going to go do it. So I would just encourage people to be candid about some of the challenges they think they're going to incur, but why they think they can do it. Because I would presume they're raising the fund and they're raising the capital because they do believe they can do it. And just to enter into that dialogue, and if I can push on that a bit more, I think one of the 
one of the challenges we have when we listen to people tell tell us what they're going to do is I think GPs sometimes think that they have to always be, it's always great. It's always positive. There's never a problem. We've never missed a deal. We never have an argument. It's awesome, 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 all the time, awesome, right? <laughs> Which that's just not life. So the willingness to dig into it and say, here's the challenges or here's where we've missed something and here's what we've learned, that to us is really powerful and really compelling because it acknowledges reality and it also builds a relationship because if we're going to be in this fund with you for 20 years, right? Average fund is 12 to 14 years and we're hoping to do more than one fund with you. Maybe it's 30 years. If you can't have that level of dialogue from the, in the beginning, it doesn't feel like it sets you up for success down the road. So Beezer, you hit on uh, something that I think is really interesting, a 20-year relationship. I think a, one thing that a lot of people don't give credit for is when you bring on an institutional LP, one of the main advantages is it's long-term durable capital and where you're in for two, maybe three funds minimum. And of course, if things go well, it's much, much longer than that. But does that also speak to the fact that as fund of funds and institutions build bigger and bigger portfolios? It's harder to divorce managers and the bar for bringing in a new name goes higher and higher and higher. And if that's true, what is the mental calculus you use to bring in new managers? And at what point do you get to a point where you're already full and you can't really bring them on without kicking other people out? The short, unfortunate answer is yes. I say unfortunate because I don't know a single LP that wouldn't like to invest in more managers than they have the capacity to because much like GPs, LPs have portfolio construction that they are bounded by. And unlike GPs, not all LPs get refreshed capital, right? So if you're a fund of fund, you go out and you raise new capital. So maybe you raise more the second time and then you can do maybe 10 more managers in your pool than you did last time. For endowments and foundations and other folks, maybe they get more money in so they can do more. But generally speaking, it's not uncommon for an institutional LP to reach at some point a mature portfolio, which means they have managers that they work with, they like, the returns are strong, they're doing really well. And so therefore, even if they want to add new managers, the bar is very high because to your point, the bar is set. You not only have to do better, they have to believe the fund that they're going to add to their portfolio is going to do better than their existing funds. And you also are asking the LP to say no to somebody, which has its own, I mean, we're all human. It, sometimes that just is hard to do. But it's unlike, so it'd be, it'd be, it's sort of like when a GP goes out and it's that last check in their fund and they have five companies and you're like, ooh, who's going to get it? Or reserve math. And you're like, oh, I, I have to choose. And so it's unfortunate, but that's, that's just the reality of investing. If we had limitless money, like that would be awesome. I sadly don't know many people that have limitless money. <laughs> Although it seems like we're going to have a very strong liquidity year with a number of people coming to market on the public side, SPACs, direct listings, and, and the like. But Can I add one point on that, though? Because I think there's another point that's been coming up in the last couple of years that managers, I know if you're starting your first fund, this is not, your need is just, I just need capital for my fund. So I'm not worrying about my opportunity fund or my growth fund or my super duper growth fund. But from an LP perspective, what's happening is it's not just the same managers. Let's say you have, I'm making this up, 20 managers in your LP portfolio. Those 20 managers are both coming back faster. So the average time was three or even four years. Now it's two. And they're coming back with more products. 
So as an LP, one of the situations, and this is very prevalent over the last two years amongst my, my, almost every LP I speak to, let's say you had 10 million that you had signed for a fund. They're coming back and they're saying, but I have another fund and I want you to do, if not the same check size, a percentage of it. So that further whittles down the dollars for new managers. Because each, it, it's like if a, you were investing in a portfolio company and the portfolio came back and said, great, I, I want your Series A check, but you know what? You need to do two companies at once, not just one. And the GP would be like, oh, well, I'd only get to do half the companies that I thought I would. So that math's also happening right now in a very, very real way. And I do think the unfortunate part is that it's making it harder for new funds to come to market. And you'll have insight on this so you can add, you can flesh that out. But I do, when we look in the numbers, we see far fewer first-time funds right now than historically. And I think that's part of the reason that and some of the big funds are raising really, really, really big funds. So there's even more capital going into that. But I, I see that dynamic right now in the market. And it, it pains me a bit because I think some really great funds are going to have a harder time raising than, than if there was you know more money to go around. If it's the case that a lot of air is being taken out of the room by legacy brands coming back more frequently and stapling on new products, opportunity funds, growth funds, what have you seen work from a GP perspective, especially somebody that's on a fund one, two, or three, that really resonates with institutional LPs? And maybe what we can do to make this more specific, what are the things that GPs have done to cut through the noise that really resonate with you? When I make it personal to us, things that have worked well for Sapphire is we do like meeting people early. So meeting people in between your raises is great because we're not unusual. Most LPs do like to get to know a fund for at least a fund cycle, which again is different from how GPs necessarily invest. Some, some people know they're entrepreneurs for a long time, some don't. We ask for patience and understanding because when we have invested in a fund, you have to make some of the prioritization in your calendar, your existing portfolio, which unfortunately does squeeze down the time for new meetings, but all LPs I know want to take them. So some patience is asked. And then follow-up right? Good, thoughtful communication and following up. I would say maybe twice a year because what LPs like to see is progress. And if something interesting happens in between, go for it, right? But it's not quite the same thing as with a startup where they're like every, you know, maybe it's two weeks or every month, there could be a new business inflection. It's just not as, not as much changes in a fund that quickly. But one of the things LPs will be tracking is if somebody comes to us and says, we're going to go launch a fund and we're going to go do X, Y, Z with it. And here's the people that are happening with it. And they come back and they show you that they're doing what they said they'd do and it's productive. And the same thing comes up. Are they getting interesting deals? Why are they doing it? How is it working? Knowing that someone does what they said they're going to do is very powerful and showing the progress in the portfolio. And we have certainly... I'll own this. We've looked at funds in the past and said, it's too soon for us. We're not quite there yet. And then come back later on when there's been more progress that you can see and say, oh, like we, we see what's happening and that's great. And that's partially their communication with us. Um, we try to remember to check back in with folks. It's, it's a two-way street. We own that. Um, but I would say those are things that have worked really well for us. There is definitely the thing that I think is great, which is if there is a GP that has an a capital constrained fund, if they flag the new manager to their LPs, that has a lot of resonance. It just can't be somebody who flags a thousand funds. It's it's really powerful because if you have a GP, right, if there's someone we're close to and they say so-and-so is really interesting coming up, please take a meeting. Like we will of course do that. But if they flag 10 people in one week, we'll need them to sort of help us understand if all of them are that awesome or if they feel, you know, what what's going on. So we'll ask those questions to help us understand. And it's 
it's not bad that they have flagged ton funds, but we will then have, try to understand which ones, you know, what does it all mean? How do you, how do you think about it? Your advice about, you know, staying in touch and building a relationship, I think is an important one. But going back to during a fundraise, when you're meeting somebody, you don't really have the luxury if you're trying to get somebody into that fund of spending two to three years with them. It's often hoping to get an anchor, hoping to get people that will come into that fund. And the questions that often come up in my conversations with GP, and I'd love to get your take on, on these two questions. The first is, is there a percentage of the fund that represents a good first close where it doesn't create signaling risk and it's enough to feel like, hey, this is big enough to be responsible as an investor? Secondly, how should people think about you know, getting people incented to come in that first close versus waiting until the very end? Well, I love the fact that you brought the minimal viable fund size concept because that is one that we are big supporters of. I think the one and done close is obviously lovely for all of the logistical simplicity of it. But I heavily advise new managers not to get caught up in the need for that, but instead close on what they can execute their strategy against. So it's, I think when I was coming up in the business, the argument was don't close on less than 50% of your fund. But I don't know if that's really always going to be true. And some people could probably do their fund, start out much smaller. Maybe it's 30%, whatever the number is that works for their strategy. Because if once you close and you're in business, then you can start doing deals and showing people what your investor taste is and how it works. It's the best proof there is. So getting, getting in the business of doing the business, I always encourage folks to do, but be aware that they need to think through their check sizes. Then if they're only closing on 30%, they never raise another dollar. How can they make that those dollars they have work? And and you're gonna have to make a choice, right? Are you gonna write the check size as you would for your real target fund size and then have a very concentrated portfolio? Or write smaller checks in the beginning and then as you raise more money, are those checks undersized? And the answer is yes, they will be. And yes, that is not atypical for first-time funds. First-time funds usually have a little bit of wonkiness in them because of this very nature. And if there's good reasons for it and you can explain it, that that goes a long way. And I would also say, I'd encourage folks, one of the things they can do, you're talking about incentives. I tell people this all the time because I think it's an alignment, but also it helps is the, if there's near recent angel deals that you've done or whatever deals, whatever nature that you can put into the fund. So it starts with a little bit of progress. That is something LPs really like because it shows your taste. It shows, it gives a little bit of something extra. And as I said to someone recently, if you're investing in the next Snowflake, Uber, DoorDash, whatever it is, and you've done it personally, and you raise your fund and it's not in it, like there could be a challenge in the future because you're just going to go, maybe not because you're going to become a centimillionaire and, and fund your own funds in the future, but <laughs> it does keep it out of the vehicle and you kind of want it in there because the LPs want it in there and that's the relationship you're building. And if you don't want to give it to the LPs, what kind of, it also kind of questions like, what, how are you feeling about your investing? You know, that's certainly one incentive of rolling angel portfolio in and probably smaller dollar amounts. It's a smaller part of the fund. And you know, I've seen that quite often in many cases that actually turned out really well for the LPs that ultimately came into the fund. What are your thoughts generally on other incentives, i.e. preferred terms, you know, giving away a piece of the GP economics? We have seen first-time funds go through all of those exercises, and we've seen it happen. Do you necessarily believe in that, or do you think that is a negative sign if, if people are willing to do that. It's certainly the case that sometimes that's just necessary. This might be hearsay, but I understand that Founders Fund started that way and Peter Thiel had to 
or maybe wanted to give part of the economics for the initial check. So it certainly is a case that one can start that way and can be successful. And I know of other funds where that's the case. I would generally advise to proceed with caution because one of the things that I worry about with my LP hat on is that does this GP then give away so much that they're not motivated? It is hard being a first-time manager. There's not a lot of management fee. You don't want to carve up the GP economics so much that you're not getting enough if it does work out, because that sort of sucks all the air out of the room, right? And then you also want to make sure that even if it is critical for the first fund, at what point can you dial it back? Because sometimes people end up with with the drag for multiple fund cycles. And we have definitely advised other LPs sometimes to essentially back off it. I mean, it's, it's, it's lovely. I mean, it's great when an, L, when an LP gets extra juice. So I, I, I get the desire a lot. And we've helped a lot of funds in the early days and not asked for that. And there's a part of my head in my mind, which I'm like, am I a good fiduciary? Like, shouldn't we be asking? But then I'm like, oh, God, does it, what if it shackles the GP? And the point is to make them successful, especially if you're looking in certain markets where they've been, it's been harder to raise. Now, I would say the times when it feels aligned is if the LP is essentially charging that for additional benefit, like are they fundraising for you? Are they doing a concrete value-add service that comes at a cost to them? For example, back in the DFJ days, we did take part of the fee and carry of every fund that joined the DFJ network. I don't know if that's still true for the Draper network, caveat, caveat, but part of what that funded was a program. It funded people. It funded my salary, right? And I went and I developed business development, corporate development. I, I you know, LP relations. I, I did things to help, help the network. And it was, that was what the fee was for, part of it at least. So there's, there's reasons when it works, but I just always approach with some caution because sometimes it's been, it's been harder for the GP. I don't know. What have you seen? Does it work well? Am I not seeing the, the whole pie? No, I think it's pretty consistent with what we've seen in, in, in that you have to think about every fundraise as sequential and what it actually will mean for you, not just for that particular fund, but for future funds. And does it change the overall level of synergies and alignment with the LPs? Does it impact the GP's ability to do certain things or does it change the way they, you know, continue to operate? And I think, you know, we're seeing it in small opportunities. And I think opportunistically, it does make sense when you need it. But no, I have not seen it, you know, across the board. And, you know, we'll see if that continues. The thing that I wanted to touch on, you know, just tangentially to this is you have a lot of first time funds that are much, much smaller than what is needed to not only sustain a single GP, but let alone a a whole GP team or a whole team itself. What is the role of an LP then in today's world? I mean, is there a true value add? You know, we've looked at the Andreessen model as it relates to helping companies with a whole host of services, do these, you know, smaller AUM managers, is that something that they need, they ask for? And what do you do in terms of adding value? This isn't a very pretty thing to say, but it's that most LPs, unless they've constructed their business to acknowledge this, are fundamentally not getting paid for doing that. They haven't built their business. They've built their business around taking the financial risk. They haven't taken it around building the bandwidth or the value-added services or the team or the people or the risk that the new GP will decide they don't like venture and leave or that the, the new GP doesn't get along with their partner because they haven't tested it well enough or they don't understand the business and what reserves are and portfolio construction and how to, how to figure out a cap table or the business of managing a venture firm. 
again, there are some that have built their business around that, but I would suspect that is a fraction of the number of LPs out there. Most LPs out there have not built their business to do that. So therefore, when GPs purposefully or inadvertently ask for that, they're actually asking LPs to do something that there's no extra in the system for that. And that's why I think a lot of LPs just have a really, really hard time for it. They don't have the hours in the day. They don't have the team. They don't have the LP list to then go out and make introductions. They don't. You know, they just It's just not how the business of how it works. And so you're filtering for LPs who personally are interested and or care and or think there's some financial benefit because we have seen a lot of emerging managers be very successful. But it's just one of those places where the industry, I feel like it's we're taking two puzzle pieces and trying to fit them together and saying, why doesn't it work? And you're like, well, historically, LPs just aren't that. I mean, think about the size of the average endowment office or hospital system. Like, It's just not 20 people. It's not the Andreessen model. They don't have 200 people there waiting to help. Like, They're wonderful people doing good stuff, but they're managing billions of dollars across, I don't even know how many asset classes, right? That's, that's just not their business. So that's part of the push and pull between the two. Part of me totally understands that. And I think there's a lot of GPs and most GPs would be perfectly happy with an LP that makes their cap calls and invests fund after fund. There's another part of me that thinks that LPs also have a real responsibility in fostering the right type of growth within the industry. You've done a lot with OpenLP. And I also remember an article that you wrote, I think pretty recently, around diversity in venture. And you had a concept in there that was, I think it was coined, the diversity audit. I think it would be great to hear what exactly is that diversity audit. And in your mind, why is that so important and what inspired it for you? We want to do as much as we possibly can, we being Sapphire Partners, because we do want to be a great LP. There's times we want to help folks and we don't, we can't do it with dollars. Right. So what else can we do? And that's part of why we launched OpenLP. That's part of why we are so thrilled to be on podcasts like this. There's ways that we can do one to many. And we want to, the point of OpenLP and this ties to the diversity audit, there are other LPs out there doing things and other GPs writing with an LP voice and connecting and providing transparency and providing all the different pieces of information and insights. And we started OpenLP to help just amplify the heck out of that. So the idea was, yes, it's not everywhere, but it's in a lot of places. And there's even if it's in some of the places where the people, you know, in the large pension funds or in the endowments where they can't do as much as they want to do either. But if they can come and speak on a conference, like that's huge. Right. So that's why we started OpenLP. And then when we saw the Women in VC report, it ended with this really wonderful call to action that was just very succinct and very specific, which is two wonderful things in a busy world. And they said, do your own diversity audit, figure out where you're at. And then there was a certain other steps of what they suggested LPs could do to help encourage diversity. And so we were like, okie dokie, let's do it. And then one of the things they talked about is like, people need to know. So we, we wrote a blog and we published it and it's on, you know, I tweeted it. So you can go look in my little Twitter profile. It's on LinkedIn. So it's out there. And so we did that on purpose because we wanted to support and encourage this. And I don't know how many other LPs will do this audit internally, I think there'll be more people that do the internal audit than do the external. Because when you talk to LPs, they are usually mostly conscious of the diversity in their portfolio. We were surprised by a couple, we weren't surprised, surprised, but we were interested to see a couple dynamics come up. Um, One of which is you could kind of map the growing diversity in the ecosystem over the last 10 years. We were both seeing more managers, more diverse managers come to us. And again, since we played the late seed series A, there's just Sadly, not as much diversity as there are in the new managers as there are in 
the much smaller funds were in the rolling funds. But that said, we still saw a lot more than we saw in the past, which was awesome. And we also tracked, I went back and looked at the managers we invested in in the very beginning and noted that on the whole, they had become more diverse too. So even when we had invested in teams that didn't have women originally, I might be wrong, but I think almost all of them have them now. If not check writing authority, then like coming up the ranks very quickly with the idea of giving them check writing authority. Um, because we were also, as part of our audit, we it's hard to know because you don't always know inside everybody's firm who has check writing authority and who doesn't. But we use the Axio study on this, which is certain titles connotate check writing authority. So we just sort of split it that way. Um, and we were encouraged to see for what it's worth. And Axios did a study of this too, and they were targeting funds that were over 100 million. And the Women in VC report went down to 25. There was me- there was like just the gross ma- like majority of funds. I think it was 60 percent or something had no female check writers, and we were the reverse of that. So I was very excited because we do work with larger funds. So that told me the combination that the industry is making progress, and we have made progress, and that was exciting. And I'm sharing all this because I, I, I just want to encourage other folks, even if they're not going to share it, because a lot of people have rules about sharing information outside their, their institutions, and I respect that. But to look at it themselves, and one other last note, and then I'll stop. I also found it interesting because our team's diverse, right? Me being on it creates some level of gender diversity, right? But generally speaking, our team is also diverse in other metrics as well. And we started thinking about how many annual meetings and LPACs are we on that are diversity. We couldn't find any LP studies out there for the LP universe. So shout out if anybody has them, please share. But we just, because where our thinking was, if the point of the report is more diversity in GP land will create more diversity in companies, is the same true up the stack, right? Is there more diversity in LP land, create more diverse GPs getting funded? And I could only speak to what we see anecdotally, but it was on average better than the industry from a GP perspective. Like, I think when I go to an annual meeting, there's 20 to 30% people that I identify visually as female. But on LPACs, I'd say in the US, 50% of the LPACs that we're on, I or my female colleagues are the only women. And again, that doesn't say anything about who's back in the office and who's not chosen to be on the LPAC. Like, it's all vague, vague, vague and opaque. But it was it was sort of intriguing when we're like, oh, that's interesting because there is a lot more diversity when I look around the LP world, but you don't always feel it when you're in the room. I do agree with your sentiment that things are improving. I also agree with your sentiment that within the sub $100 million fund ecosystem, the level of progress is actually much quicker. And and we're certainly seeing many more emerging funds that are led by women or led by underrepresented. I'm very happy to hear that. And I I do think it's going to take some time. At the end of the day, it, it does have to come from all over the capital stack, starting with LPs. And I think the call to action is a, is a really good one. So thank you for um, you know actually bringing that type of leadership to the space that really still needs it for us to get to the point where we need to, I, I think, be to create the right type of capital market for founders. I want to end with a segment we call our heat check round. And I have three questions that I'd love to ask you rapid fire, starting with the best career advice you've received in the seat of being an LP. I listen to a lot of LPs when they speak and they do podcasts. And I I get a lot of advice that way. And there's there's two pieces of advice. One I'm going to tribute to, I think originally came from David Swenson, but he said it to someone else on his team who then repeated it to me, was you don't have to invest in every great fund, but every fund you invest in should be great, which is 
interesting and probably is a corollary in the venture side because you hear about all these 100x funds, 10x funds, and you're like, wow. And you're like, okay, I just need to make sure I have some of those. Like you can't do all of them to our earlier conversation, but I have to shoot for that with every one that I do. And the other one is something that I think somebody said to Chris Duvos and he repeats it, which was invest courageously. I think if we don't push ourselves to do that, it's really easy to fall back on the same old, same olds. That's just not what venture is about, right? Like no no entrepreneurs like same old, same old is going to get you into the next new decacorn. No. And so same thing in LP land. Those are both really important. And I think the latter is one that is really tough for a lot of LPs. And there's so many incentive reasons not to take risk and go after, you know, the ones that could be potentially five to 10 X's because they come with inherent risk, whether it's career, whether it's longevity of how long liquidity takes, it's the names. But that also speaks to the fact that you know, a lot of LPs, when they do invest, they're going to miss out on a lot of great funds. And in some ways, that's okay. In some ways, you're going to kick yourself on a fund that you might miss. I'd be curious, like, you know, in your time investing as a LP, is there a firm where you missed out on a fund, and maybe you're in, in them now, maybe you're not, that you look back and say, you know, I really should have listened to my instinct, I missed out. And if so, who would that be? And what did you learn from it? We've met in the past with some really extraordinary first time call it sub $10 million funds. And you're like, wow, this is going to be huge, but it's not our game. I want to put it out there because it does exactly speak to when people say, but they're going to be great. Yes, some of them really are. And so how do you figure out how to go after that market? And then they grow up and they get bigger and it's all wonderful. Um, so I'm going to own that. And it's, it's definitely true. And then one of the mistakes, and this, I'm, I'm going to own this, this is not a Sapphire Partners, was I grew up in an era where fintech dedicated funds were just not the highest performers. And so it's been a learning for me and a wonderful learning to look at, oh my God, is the fintech world on fire, right? And we have a lot of, I mean, who knows where it is? Well, you no, know, the exits are still yet to come. Caveat, caveat, I'm not picking stocks. I'm not naming names. We're SEC registered. So this is not anything to tell people what to do. But it's an area where I think some people also had this around clean tech, which is it failed in the past, kind of writing it off. And one of the things that me not seeing that personally helps remind me that there's new ways of doing things and to just to kind of keep pushing yourself to keep listening and seeing if things have changed. And this is part of the sometimes it's generational, sometimes it's just someone coming at it with a different slant, but just reminding you like, you, yeah, you can miss stuff when you just sort of say carte blanche, oh, that didn't work in the past. My final question to you, there's going to be a lot of people listening to the podcast that really are going to hear what you said, and it's going to really resonate with them. They're going to want to potentially pitch you as an LP that they want in their funds. What piece of advice would you give to people that are pitching you for the first time? I think this might be contrary to what their lawyers have told them, but put enough in your email that I know what kind of fund you're raising. Put as much as you possibly can bear to share, because that allows me to share with my team because you want all of us rooting for you. It allows me, me being the collective we, to understand what you're doing. And if it's not a fit, we can tell you that now, but we can then at least understand what you're doing so we can track it and start a dialogue. What, what bogs us down is if somebody says, hey, I love what you're doing, which is lovely. And we love to hear that because we're all human. And I want to tell you about what I'm doing. And you're like, well, you could be doing anything, right? And there's a whole bunch of stuff we don't invest in. We just do early stage venture. And it, you know, it's, there's a whole bunch of stuff that falls out on the sides of that that doesn't fit. But it's easier if I can tell if I can filter that quickly versus the ones or it's, you know, half of what they're doing. It's not like, oh, I don't want to tell you about my investments, but I think this, you know, enterprise software is interesting. And you're like, oh, you got to give me more because the too many back and forths 
we just live in a time crunched world and I want to, we want to be there. We want to hear, we want to listen, but don't, don't create barriers that don't need to exist. Cause I can also promise you, I could, I could read a, it's the LP's job to keep confidential, but be like, I bet all of us could have read the Starbucks business plan and none of us could have pulled it off. So what you do should be so special to you that there shouldn't be an, oh, an LP is going to read it. And somehow my secrets are going to be abused by the, by the universe. I don't think the venture model is very proprietary <laughs> anyway. So I, I, I'm totally with you on that. Beezer, this has been a lot of fun as usual. And I really appreciate you being on the show and all the support you've shown to us over the last almost decade, I guess. Of course. Well, I love it when you talk about how do people learn things. You are such a source of education and guidance and information and, and connectors, right? The Raise Conference is fantastic. So thank you for all that you do. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Beezer and Sapphire Partners, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes of the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released. 